0: The late Ivan Allen once said, the city of Atlanta has always had a good spirit. It's arguably the cultural epicenter of America's South, a place where that good spirit manifests in its vibrant music and visual art scenes. But in 2020, attention fell to stories of injustice, protest and politics. This is The Shot, where photographers share the stories about their photos. I'm Michael John Oliver. Photographer Lindsay Witherspoon lives in Atlanta and played a huge part in capturing the stories that carried Atlanta through 2020. From Black Lives Matter to Georgia's part in the presidential election, Lindsay's striking black and white photos told a story that was both timeless and undeniably modern.
1: My first camera was a Fuji Film. I can't even think of what series it was, but it had like the the digital zoom attached to it. So, the, so mm-hmm. they had a, a built-in lens, and you know, very limited uh, creative abilities with it. But I do remember being excited about it because it gave me a new avenue of creativity of of being able to figure out just how can I make this thing work in the way that I wanted wanted it to do. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it worked out to where I was able to upgrade to something much more professional. But at that time, that's all I had. And I appreciate being able to just use something that I didn't realize was going to you know, change my life.
0: Because you grew up in a very creative family, didn't you?
1: My mother was um, a painter. Um, you know what? You, you could put anything in her hand and she, you know, turn it to gold. And being able to see someone who who used their 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 creativity along with like their intellect with the work that they created definitely had you know a, a valuable part of my life because at that time, I realized that I don't necessarily have to be what someone else wanted me to be. And what I mean by that is that you know I have other family members that have you know gone on to do very well in the educational sector and other types of professional um, sectors, but I knew that I wanted to just, I wanted to play for the rest of my life. So just, you know, just wanting to always be able to have my eyes open and just to feel and to do, and to have a, a, a parent that saw that in me and supported it, it, it definitely made me realize that, you know, certain things can't come true.
0: Were you part of a big family?
1: Yeah, so my, my extended family is huge. So I'm pretty much the only child, um, I don't, I don't have any siblings, which, which, you know, it kind of sucked, but at the same time I was getting all the attention. So that was the, that was the plus part of it all. But, um, you know, I have cousins who are my age and we would hang out every once in a while. I have some cousins that did very well in, um, athletics. Like I said, others that have gone on to get their PhDs and those that went through the process of, you know, getting their, um, medical doctorate and things of that nature, um, but my small household, which was me, my mother, and my grandparents, it was just us. So I just kind of bounced ideas off of them, or really paid attention to the things that that made their light, you know, pretty much shine in their li- in their lives. So anything that that dealt dealt with music, or anything that dealt with news, like my grandmother um, told me one day that her her lifelong dream was to become to write for a newspaper. And though she never got to that point, it's it's it makes me feel good inside because I'm doing the things that you know she may have wanted to do. So now she's seeing that dream, although it wasn't, you know, come to fruition for her, it came into fruition for her grandchild. So just understanding that the the little things that we're doing, you know, it, it really adds to the impact of who we are and our families because my grandmother is in her in her eighties. So, you know, an eighty year old black woman living in the time of, you know, civil rights and Jim Crow and all of the, the extreme limitations that were for black people. You know, we, we are privileged in that area. My, my generation and, you know, some of the generations before us are privileged in the na- in, in the notion of actually doing the things that our grandparents dreamed of. So, it, it, you know, like I said, it just allows me to know that, you know, change has happened, maybe not as much as we like. But knowing that my generation we're able to do so much more, and you know, to add to the historical context of now, is is definitely a privilege.
0: So you you grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know one of the one of the central places of the civil rights movement right. in the United States. Can you sort of paint a picture of what it was like to grow up there?
1: Birmingham is well, why when I lived there because I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia, but. You know, when when I was there, it was a very simple place. And what I mean by simple is, is that everyone knew each other. They still know each other. You know, we go about our lives and we do our own thing as far as whatever our profession is. Yet there is a, you know, once you really start taking in what your city is, you start paying attention to things um, a lot more. So just to give you an idea of what it was like, under, you know, what it was like to want to be a photographer in in Birmingham, you realize that the people who you were either wanting as a mentor or trying to photograph just like, you realize that there is a distinct difference. And what I mean by that is by gender and race. It wasn't a lot of um, Black photographers in any of the sectors, mostly it with when you think about photography back at home, home being Birmingham, Alabama, they were either in weddings or family portraits. I knew that I always wanted to step out of that world just because, you know, we we have to be honest with ourselves. If we don't want to do it, then by all means don't don't do it, you know? So I knew that I always wanted to be in the photojournalism field with, you know, a little bit of commercial work, you know, sprinkled in every once in a while. And most of those photographers were white men. And I felt like I didn't have community as I was trying to progress in my um, in my field. I have two different perspectives because there's, you know, one where you're growing up and you're, you're really trying to understand what life is all about. Like you're going to high school and you're seeing these things, you're enjoying your friend time, you're enjoying, you're just enjoying life. But when you really have to start seeking out help for the specific things that you want to do. Then that gives you a completely perspect, a completely different pers- perspective on what home
0: is for you. So I grew up in a, a really small town, and I kind of understand the the dynamics and the the culture of being in a small place and wanting to grow and thrive as a creative person. And when I moved to London, I've, I certainly found that you are the product of your environment, and it's more than just being a talented person. It is the collaboration between you and the cultural space that you're in,
1: and yeah, and, and you know, just to just to just to ask you a question, you know, what was like the were there any extreme differences from moving from New Zealand to London? Because in my mind, that's like two different type of climates of people, whether just a lot of things that's attached to it.
0: Yeah, the, I think the the main thing that I sort of got when I moved to London was that it's the mm-hmm. pace. It's a city of you know cl- close to eight million mm-hmm. people. It's it's everyone's coming and going. There's that kind of attitude that you know this is a city of quote unquote consequence. Mm. Whereas in New Zealand, the one of the big kind of like catchphrase or catchphrases, like kind of bits of slang that kind of typifies what it means to be a Kiwi, is "sweet ass." Mm. Like it's everything's mm. cool. <laughs> Everything, everything's cool. Like, the the stakes are kind of lower. Everything's kind mm-hmm. of fine. It's it's all good. And the way that it kind of like made sense to me was the difference between applying for a job in New Zealand versus applying for a job mm-hmm. in London. In New Zealand, you send out an application, you write a little cover letter, and you're probably going to get mm-hmm. a reply. You'll get a reply saying, hey, listen, sorry, Steve, you didn't get the job. Oh, we're not going to interview you, but here's some things you can do next time. Whereas in London, it's there's none of that. Mm-hmm. It's just a completely different sort of stakes. And While there is that, uh, I guess, that that connection between Britain and New Zealand, it did feel distinctly different and almost to the extent that it felt overwhelming. Mm
1: -hmm. And and when you say that, it makes me think about some photographers who live and work in Los Angeles, California. So it sounds like um, New Zealand is like California and London is kind of like New York in comparison to like just how people are laid back and just, you know just, you know, just doing their thing. So it's, it's it's like I said, it's, it's interesting when we think about the context of home and how we become comfortable with what we've known. And when we move away, mm-hmm. we have to really recalibrate our brain around what, yeah. you know, adjusting to someone else's process. And that's pretty much, you know, uh, uh, one of the, the reasons why I decided to move from home, um, because I didn't mm-hmm. want to remain comfortable. I knew that there was so much out there for me, you know, of course, going into it with like this blind faith of sorts. But yet, if I didn't move, I didn't want to have this this idea of saying, what if, or how could I? I didn't want to question it. At least I could test it. And if it didn't work out, I can always move back home. The goal was not to move back home, but, you know, just to know that home has some security attached to it, you know?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think that the thing I had to kind of get my head around was returning mm-hmm. home wasn't an admittance of mm-hmm. failure. Mm-hmm. It was, it, there were, you know, circumstances just might not have played exactly. out. And, and it's, it, you know, there's absolutely no, uh, no shame in returning home with, your your suitcase and knocking on your parents' door and saying, yeah, so that didn't work <laughs> out. Right. Uh, I'm hideously jet lagged and will be for quite a few weeks. Um, let's recalibrate and see where exactly, we are. Afterwards. Exactly,
1: I and, I and I've told plenty of, of budding photographers that you know, if it doesn't work, that doesn't mean you're a failure. I think that the, the, in my opinion, the failure is never trying um, because mm. it takes a different type of heart and courage to step outside of what you already know, and when you do that. I think it adds to your own personal confidence and it adds to your hero's journey. You know, this time it didn't work. Let's try it again. It, it, it never hurts. Uh, uh, my mom would always say, um, nothing beats a failure, but a try. And as long as you try,
0: you're good with me. So what brought you to Atlanta of of, of all places? (laughs) What drove you there?
1: Well, for one, it's two hours away from Birmingham. So I'm still close to home. It offered much more um, and much broader opportunities as a creative. I came here, you know, before, let me me take a step back. Before I moved here, I would travel to Atlanta a lot just to meet with people, whether that's going to be potential clients or advertising agencies. You know, I tried to talk to as many people as possible. So that way, when I felt comfortable and ready to move here, at least I would have somebody I can reach out and say, hey, I live here now, would love to work with you. I was establishing some roots here before I actually moved to Atlanta. And also just knowing with Atlanta being a a larger city than Birmingham, that the opportunities would be much more vast in, in the idea that though the city is flooded with other photographers, somebody is going to give me a chance. Now, who that somebody is, I don't know, but I'm going to, you know, keep putting my, my foot to the pavement until I get enough work to sustain living in Atlanta. But what a lot of people don't know is, is that I was a public speaking instructor for years before um, becoming a, a full-time photographer. So that that actually helped me sustain um, as well. And, you know, it's another thing that I, I try to preach is it's okay to have, you know, a job while you're trying to pursue photography full time. Um, you have to live, and you you have to be able to sustain whatever type of lifestyle you currently have. So that way, if you decide to walk out, at least you have, you know, an option with your job. If they allow you to come back, I'm I'm always a, a person that says you need to have, you know, plan B, C, D, E. You know all of them <laughs> because you just you just never know. And while just just even thinking about 2020, how that affected so many photographers in every sector of work. You know, a lot of photographers now are either pivoting to something else or another style of photography, or they're walking into being uh, photography educators or whatever they're doing. But understanding, you know, like I said, understanding that photography can't be the only thing that you do yeah. there are other things that you may have to you know save your money for or you know if you're a person that that enjoys stocks or whatever the case may be whatever you felt like you should have done before 2020 it's not like it's too late now you just may have to pivot your thinking around it but there is a possibility of you know continuously thriving as this creative all while having something in the background
0: I find it really interesting. You mentioned that the public mm-hmm. speaking thing because I, I'm a I'm a member of a, a public speaking club, which I've always thought is kind of like the nerdiest thing you <laughs> can be a part of. But I, it's something I just ad- adore doing week yeah. in and week out because it's but what I've I found amazing is it's it's more than just learning the mm-hmm. skills and the strategy for getting up in front mm-hmm. of a group of people and speaking that I found there's so much overlap, Mm -hmm. whether it's you know whether you're in a meeting at work and the boss turns to you and says, tell me about that thing. And you're put on the spot and you immediately have to structure your thoughts in a in a certain way. Have you found you know any overlap between that element of what you used to do and what you're doing now as a photographer?
1: Most certainly. You know, just being on this podcast with you is how I'm you know continuously using my public speaking and teaching skills along with just being able to talk freely about things. Also being able to articulate what I'm trying to say. Um, It is, even with me being a a, a skilled public speaker, I still see the things that I can work on and progress on. So even now, I'm I'm constantly using those skills and I'm always using them on, on set while I'm doing photo shoots. If you think about it, you want to be able to create this friendship or our you know relationship with whoever you're photographing and whether that's going to be through the art that you're creating or the conversation that you're creating it adds to the element of the photo as well so so yeah public speaking is, it's not going away even you know even if we're on these billion Zoom calls that we've been on. Somebody's going to reach out to you to talk. and You're going to have these meetings. They're going to be face-to-face, however you're having them. But public speaking is a skill, I, I truly believe, um, that everyone should at least practice, you know, most of the time, because I, I think about how some people may have lost really good jobs just by the way they were communicating with someone. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you yeah, know, let's be real about it. If you don't know how to talk to someone, how will you be able to work with them? So I, I think about it in that way, and I think there's a, you know, a way that you can get your point across in various ways without putting someone down. You know, yeah. you can you can critique someone and 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 be as open and honest about it. Yet, you know, I just I just think that public speaking is is it's the key. it's the it's a vital part of all of the work that we do.
0: Yeah, you think of Atlanta, and it is this it is a hotbed of yeah. culture. And you you think about it, the home of uh, modern hip hop, mm-hmm. R and B, neo soul. Mm-hmm. How would you describe its sort of the visual arts culture that photography sits in?
1: Ah, uh, it's. It's so so many great photographers here. And I discovered a lot more as of last year. If you, you know, everyone recalls the whole Black Lives Matter that we've had and making sure that we give a a platform and a place for Black and brown creatives. So it it only brought more work to my eyes. Um, It brought much more like heart-centered work, like work that you could tell that they put their their mind, you know, set aside their creativity, but they put their feelings into it. And it only made it much more impactful, you know, as we began to see more and more of it. So it's a plethora of, of, of creatives here. And it, it would be remiss if no one mentioned just how creative this place is all across the board, you know, from from photography to Graffiti to filmmaking, every part of creativity is right here in this city, and we we actually have this this group that calls themselves I won't say they call themselves, but the name of the, the the organization is Atlanta influences everything. So so no matter who you talk to in Atlanta when it comes to creativity, we've influenced someone outside of Atlanta. So you, yeah. I feel like Atlanta has a touch on everything without us even realizing it. That that was one of the, the reasons I, I came here too, because you can bump into anybody here and, I, and and it's not like this this ego trip about them. So yeah, I, I love it here. I don't see myself leaving anytime soon and plus I love the south too much to leave. I'll I'll be here for a long time.
0: <laughs> Location and scene does play such a, a crucial role in any artist's development, mm-hmm. but you are you're also, you know, a, you're a black and queer mm-hmm. person. What what kind of what role have Has that played in shaping how you've grown and developed as a photographer? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Having community definitely has allowed me to be much more confident in who I am when it comes to queerness, just because I wasn't very confident back at home, just because of community. I I didn't know where it was. I couldn't find it. And if I did find it, it was more of like, uh, it's very limited. So being able to come to Atlanta where the scene is much larger, any and everything that you want to do. It, it definitely gave me that push to just, you know, be much more vocal about what it means to be, you know, black and queer in the photography space and just being black and queer in the, the uh, creative space as well.
0: Georgia has certainly, it, as a state, has been a, the focal point for for much of American political mm-hmm. discourse, certainly the. Black Lives Matter protests last year through to the Senate runoffs and recently the, the controversial voter suppression law, all of which mm-hmm. is, you know, coming under the cloud of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. How has the last 12 months been for mm-hmm.
1: you? Um, they've been very special. I'll just say that. <laughs> and you know, just understanding how all parts of my community are affected makes you work harder. It makes you want to be that that much visible voice because, you know, so many people vote against their themselves. You know, and, and one very prominent example of that is when uh, the Major League Baseball decided to take away their um, mm. all-star game from Atlanta. This just happened last week. And then at that time, our governor had you know a few choice opinions about the major league baseball about major league baseball leaving you know not having their all-star game here but it to me it's like that cognitive dissonance if you know that there's gonna be this one bill or vote that's going to affect everybody but think it doesn't affect you, then that's where those those minority voices continuously speak up. Being in touch with so many of the grassroots leaders here who fight for this daily, you know, we have our conversations and we share our frustrations around it, knowing that our identities are being suppressed just by somebody else's, somebody else believing that we shouldn't exist or that our voices shouldn't be heard. So, you know, the work that I'm either commissioned to do or the personal projects that I work on myself definitely deal with stories that are centered around Blackness, those communities who are being affected by it most, and also those communities who are disappearing because of, you know, stories such as voter suppression and um, Black Lives Matter and and having, you know, Black rural communities who are affected by the fact that they only have one polling location and it's probably in on another side of town where they can't drive to because they don't have transportation or they don't have public transportation. So everything that happens in Atlanta, you know, it affects what happens around the state and, you know, quite honestly, will have the potential to affect what happens around the world. Just to jump back to, you know, what you asked, it is important that voices like mine are heard and seen visually just because we show that the visibility of these communications are going to be important and especially how it could affect the vote of what happens in the state.
0: Your Black Lives Matter photography in particular was really striking. Do you tell me the the story about how you came to capture those particular shots?
1: Well, the first day of the protest, I wrestled with going, um, but decided to go just because this was the first time of the many times that we've had these type of incidents where I felt compelled to just go and be around other people who are just as frustrated with what was happening. I decided to just, you know, be a participant and make photographs of those moments. Some of those moments were very quiet. Some of those I decided not to photograph just because of how overwhelming it it became as we, you know, really got into the actual protest. Others were were right there in my face. And I, I just felt like the stories behind them needed to be explained. They needed to be shown because all of us were going through this collective grief. And going through that time, you know, I, I think the work just really resonated with a lot of people. You know, some people, which is totally understandable, didn't want to go to the protest because of obviously COVID-19. And I respect that. Um and for those of us that were out there, I, I think just the the grief of being home and the, the the tiredness of all of the activity of, of what happened, you know, moving deeper into the the pandemic, just really got to everybody. So that that work just came from a space of I was I, I will say I was hesitant, but I'm glad that I went out there just because I wanted to be part of of demonstrating that frustration, but in a way that would be much more visual rather than um, reactive.
0: A lot of the photos most of the photos I've seen from that particular series are all in black mm-hmm. and white. Was that a, a conscious decision on your part to photograph exclusively with kind of those kind of high contrasts or did that just, did that come out of the, the photos at afterwards?
1: It it definitely came afterwards. I feel like black and white adds that element of timeliness, timelessness, excuse me. So it, it, you can't tell what year it is unless you look at specific things. So it's it's more of an idea of we're still going through the same things that happened in the you know 50, 60s and even before then. So it adds that element of what time is it and in, in what 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 year is and what day is, did this actual activity occur?
0: When you look at back at photos from from previous decades, are you, are you struck by how much similarity there is there? N-
1: not as much. Only I, I only say that because. I am a, a, a huge fan of Spider Martin's work. And Spider Martin did a, a lot of work when it came to like the, the Selma Bridge Crossing on Bloody Sunday. So I was already aware of these things and I, I can't necessarily I was surprised by it. Um, just because of the activities that, that occurred, they look very similar. They're strikingly similar. So if you look at you know civil rights photographers' work during that time and look at it now, it's pretty much the same.
0: I've spoken to many photographers who have talked about the role of social Mm -hmm. media as a kind of almost like a necessary evil and the promotion (laughs) and sort of elevation of their work. How do you feel about the role of social media in in your journey?
1: I look at it differently now, seeing that the small amount of photos that I shared from the first day of protest in Atlanta um, that was the first time I had anything to go viral, and, it, and of course, that wasn't the point. But I I realized that people were seeing the the activity that was happening in every city, every major city around the United States, and somehow, you know, some somebody found it important to share my work and understand that the fight for equality was everywhere. So I look at social media a little bit differently now um, in in a sense where, you know, making sure that what I share has this this element of importance and that I'm not sharing just to be sharing. You know, Um, I could I could show a lot of work, but I'm just very intentional on what I share with people so that way that there's that element of storytelling still attached to it.
0: When they say that the news is the first draft of history, but it almost feels like in the last 12 months, we've had a decade's worth of news just kind of crammed into yes. a year. <laughs> How are you feeling about the, the space you're in now?
1: The way I interpret um, certain things, the way I interpret work, the way that I visualize the work that I create, the the deeper stories that I want to photograph and tell, It it's it has had a, a tremendous effect on all things that are, that are part of me. And, you know, most importantly, the work, the people that I approach, the type of stories that I, um, you know, wanted to be able to visually create about people. Yes. I it, The 2020 has changed me for, for the rest of my life. I, it's, it's something that none of us will be able to, to forget, but as far as when it comes to those who are seeing it from, you know, this place of healing and artistic manner, we are forever changed by twenty twenty.
0: Because you've recently branched out from from photography into into filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Was that a, a natural consequence of the of wanting to take the storytelling to another level?
1: It, it was it was an addition. So the filmmaking that I have been doing, though I haven't shown a lot of it, it's just more so of archiving right now because I know that in a few years it will mean something completely different to me because right now looking at their work can bring about some some very hard feelings that we all have to be aware of. So right now it's just more of a documenting process rather than, you know, feeling compared to share quickly and just sit with it and see what it means, you know, a few months later or a year later. So so yeah, that's what my process looks like.
0: What kind of hard feelings?
1: Hard feelings as in the emotions that are attached to it, the apparent anger that some people feel, you know, as they are are in these protests. You know, in Atlanta, we had a separate incident with uh, um, another um, young man, Richard Brooks. Um, and it's, you know, in June, it would be the year of him being um, killed by police. So it's it's just so much that's attached to it that even some of those protest photos, I try not to look at them. Because I know how my heart feels about them. I know I remember where I was at that moment when I took that photo. So it's I just have to separate myself from it at times so I don't you know really get you know attached to my feelings around it and just to give myself a break from it because even now as we are dealing with the the Minneapolis officers case that deals with George Floyd, even that brings up the, that memory of being in those protests about George Floyd. So it's just it's a lot of memory attached to it, and I just have to give my break, give myself a break from it at times.
0: I have some friends back in New Zealand who are who are journalists mm-hmm. and photographers as well. And the reason I bring that up is because it's, it's almost word for word uh, how they described reporting and and photographing scenes yeah. uh, after the uh, the Christchurch mosque mm-hmm. massacre in March mm-hmm. last year. Uh, and they said that it was that sense that you, you, you go into mm-hmm. work mode you do. and you know you do the interviews, you hear the stories, you speak with the families in you know, whatever state of grief they happen right. to be in, but you, you get the job done. But then when you step back and you kind of contemplate the work from a, you know, not even like a, a step yeah. back, half a step yeah. back, the feelings just kind of gravitate and it becomes overwhelming. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, not, not even assess that, but, you know, realize that those feelings are coming and prepare and then, you know, allow yourself to continue doing that kind of work?
1: I always give myself a day of rest. Um, I, I remove myself from any social media. And I honestly just, I, I, I go to sleep because that's the only thing that I, that's going to rest my mind to, to, to know that, that there's going to be another day where I have to work on these, this type of work. So why not just prepare my heart and put it in a place of rest? Because I, I know that the the next day I'm probably going to be covering this type of work again. So, you know, everybody has their their own way of dealing with the trauma of the work that we have to do or we choose to do. And that looks like me getting rest, me listening to music, meditating, you know, a cartoon here and there. Anything that allows me to just kind of walk away from real life for a second and come back, you know, to, to that place of work. So yeah, that's that's what my process looks like.
0: Beyond the editorial photography, you, you're also a uh, uh, accomplished and in fact, striking portrait photographer as well. Have you found that there have been moments where the, the kind of the, the mindset and the skills you, you pick up doing one kind of photography sort of finds its way into the processes for other kinds of photography you do? Yes,
1: it does. Um, when you, the way that I think about it is the only difference between maybe something that's editorial versus you know something that may land in a newspaper is just the timing of it all. That doesn't mean that you can't make impactful images on a timeline. It's just being under being aware of what those constraints look like as the job you know happens. But um, editorial has has allowed me to be, meet some special people as well. So you know having having those conversations with folks on the 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 within photojournalism and editorial, it, it has am- impacted the way that I, I see my work now. Even if we have a short amount of time, that doesn't mean that I can't make beautiful and impactful photos for the storytelling piece that I'm working on, yeah.
0: When you think about what the, the future the future holds, and I, I know it's it's a sort of a, a weird nebulous time where even with talk of vaccines mm-hmm. and, and everything else, nothing, nothing is certain and nothing mm-hmm. ever is, but it, it, that's certainly the sense that, I think a lot of people are feeling now when you think about that and your role as a, as a photographer, as a mm-hmm. storyteller, how do you see the next you know 12 to 18 months mm-hmm. playing out?
1: Now that's a question I haven't been asked. And it's a good question. I feel like there may be more of the same of last year. And what I mean by that is with, you know, the current case going on in, in, in Minneapolis, we're just all waiting on the verdict. And that will determine what the rest of the work that we create will look like. Of course, we'll be doing stories that have a COVID connection to it yet. I just think that that's going to be the, the, the story of, this is going to be the story of the year, whether Mm. George Floyd receives justice or not. And, you know, even in that, in that, even in that same breath, I know that we'll be, Photographing other stories that, that may be upbeat, they may be attached to something that's you know due to home, or we'll be doing our own personal projects. I know for myself, I'm doing a lot more personal projects, you know, with commissions sprinkled in. But the it's 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 going to look more the same of, of last year. COVID, racial injustice, you know, unfortunately, we have the whole you know stop Asian hate movement that's that's starting to build. There may be stories that, that are attached to what does the new norm look like after COVID or during COVID or whatever the case may be. But I honestly feel like it's going to be the same as it was last
0: year. Is there anything that gives you a sense of hope?
1: Yeah. A lot of things give me a sense of hope. I know that there are people who are doing good in the world, um, and I've met quite a few of them. It, it definitely brings this, this other side of people out to know that there's still joy in the world and. You know, just to to follow up on what I just said, that doesn't mean that nothing in the world is good. It's just that I know that as far as a news perspective, that's what we're gonna be focusing on. Yet there 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 are people who are making the world a better place, whether that's through rephasing what equality looks like, those people who are give us humor to laugh, you know, laugh throughout the day, and those folks who are just just genuinely good people and I would love to see more of those stories I've photographed a few of those stories as well that it, it definitely kicks up the morale so yeah I, I have a lot of hope as to what the world will present to us now am I for you know certain that things are going to happen no because none of us are but I'm always hopeful for what is to come
0: My thanks to Lindsay Weatherspoon, and you can see more of her amazing work on her website at lindsayweatherspoon.com and on Instagram at InWeatherspoon. And you can follow The Shot on Instagram at the.shot.podcast and on our website, shotpodcast.com. And remember, if you like the show, if you really think it could be exciting or interesting to someone else, please share the episodes. Please get the word out there. It would be doing me a massive favor. I, I can't actually give you any prizes. I wish I could give you a prize. That would... How about my gratitude? My, my gratitude is the, the prize for now, but we could have a better prize later. I just have to figure out what that prize could be. It's the prize of love. Let's just call it the prize of love. If you really like the show, I would love it if you could share it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well. That would be amazing. Until next time, see you around.